We have a guest pastor with us today, Dr. Wayne Broderick, the senior pastor of Frisco Bible Church. Uh, it's in Frisco, Texas. Um, I was told by these notes to let you know Frisco Bible Church is in Frisco, Texas. Isn't that great? He actually hosts a radio show, All the Difference. It's a half-hour weekly radio program. He's authored several books, including Whatever Happened to Manhood and For Such a Time as This, The Biblical Women Changing the World. He earned his PhD through a university in London that I refuse to say out loud because I'm scared I'm going to say it wrong. He can tell you later. <laughs> I love that he's laughing at that. He previously attended Dallas Theological Seminary, Baylor University. Wayne's an avid swimmer. So if you want to race, he's willing to race you afterwards. He's a voracious reader. He actually goes fly fishing and often as he can. It's difficult in Dallas. It is difficult in Dallas. He and his wife, Jana, have three kids, Michael, Jessica, and Benjamin. And if you would, please welcome Dr. Wayne Broderick. Thank you. That was hilarious. You were awesome. <laughs> Good morning. How great to be at Grace. I've missed you guys. The, um, hola. The uh, <clears throat> Memorial Day weekend got me thinking about uh, my own uncle who died in the service of this country. And, uh, and I started down a rabbit trail of thinking about uh, loss and pain and suffering and nobility and suffering. And all that reminded me of a story. A couple of years ago, I was crying with a neighbor of ours. Uh, <clears throat> this poor fellow had, um, had to bury his daughter. It was really, really rugged. And, uh, and we, were, we were just crying. I mean, I was just there with him, just crying. And there's that moment where everybody's quiet, there's nothing to say. You know, you're just silent together. And, um, and he blew his nose in that silence, and then he looked up at me, and he said, well, at least I know the universe has some plan for this. And I thought, what? I mean, that wasn't the time or place to delve into his theology. I was just weeping with somebody who was rightly weeping, but it really stuck in my craw. Our neighbor was very purposeful about that. He said, the universe has a plan. He didn't see God as in charge. He didn't even see humans as in charge, but some pantheistic, invisible universe was the invisible force that this guy was trusting. What leads a person to that conclusion? There's, there's no reason to it. There's no logic, there's no scripture that declares the sovereignty of the universe. Okay, there are some people who think Star Wars is holy writ, but, but they're crazy, right? And thank God they are few in number. Besides those nuts, who thinks a sentient, what causes a sentient, intelligent adult human being to believe that there is a universe that has a plan? So, Long time later, I got together with this neighbor again, and, and we had coffee, and, uh, and I brought this up. Okay, that's not true. I had tea, because that's what godly people drink, and he had coffee, which is a false prophet. It smells fantastic, and then tastes bitter and horrible. Anyway, so he's drinking coffee, I'm drinking tea, and I said to him, what did you mean by when you said this about the universe? And he laid out his thesis for me, and I, and I think I'm doing justice to it. Let me walk you through it. This, he had three big points. He had really thought about this. This was his first point. He said, God can't be sovereign because then he would be responsible for human hurt. That would make him bad. 
Better he not be God than he be God and not good. His second point was, I can't pretend that my pain isn't real. And by the way, he said, Wayne, people who do so are just, they're just playing make-believe. And he's right. His third point, he said, an all-powerful, impersonal universe is the best answer. It doesn't have to answer to me like God and people do because it doesn't want a relationship with me. Now, before you wag your head at the obvious flaws in that logic, think about this. Think, what was the obvious driving force? That poor fellow devised that system of thought because he wanted an answer to his pain. He wanted an answer to pain that is brought by evil in the world, right? People want an answer to suffering, and we need to see how we can help them. Look in your notes. Um, whether you're online or here, you should have notes available to you. Uh, here, they're on a card in your bulletin. You'll see that headline there. People want an answer to suffering. Now, my neighbor obviously adopted a no-God approach, but there's a serious problem with that. Well, there are many problems with that, but there's one very great one. The no-God approach actually destroys humanity. Open your Bible to Psalm 8. Psalm 8. In Psalm 8, David's thinking. He's thinking about God. He's thinking about humanity. And, and he writes this, verse 3. When I observe your heavens, the work of your fingers, David's talking to God, the moon and the stars which you set in place, what is a human being that you remember him? A son of man that you look after him. You made him a little less than God and crowned him with glory and honor. Notice that humanity finds its very meaning in God's creation. God's creation, if the universe, heavens, moon, stars, if that's making plans, then, then the logic here says humankind is nothing. David, is, David, in fact, is rightly daunted as he considers the smallness of human beings in light of the massive spheres of space. But David understands God is the creator. He's the prime mover. You know what that does? That confers honor on humans and nobility on our suffering. It is intellectual piracy to claim that human beings have any glory at all if there is nothing but a material universe and no creator God. Rebecca McLaughlin exposes the dehumanization that is inevitable if there's no creator God. She did this in her wonderful book, Confronting Christianity. Look what she said. The materialist view of the universe erodes the foundations on which we balance life and humanness itself. If there's no good or evil, she asks, why do we lament? That's a good question, isn't it? If there's no God, if there's no right or wrong, why even cry? But we do. She goes on. If our sympathy for others is just a byproduct of evolutionary kinship, why empathize with the suffering of those outside our tribe? Removing God from the equation of suffering does not solve the riddle. Rather, it unravels our very self. Close quote. A generation ago, there was a rock group called Rush, and they, they released a song that shows what happens in the no-God approach. Uh, Neil Peart, their drummer, wrote this poem called Free Will. Look what he says. You can't pray for a place in heaven's unearthly estate. Each of us, a cell of awareness, imperfect and incomplete, genetic blends with uncertain ends on a fortune hunt that's far too fleet. Close quote. You see what he did? Mr. Peart did away with God, and then he honestly confesses that he's left with an empty, short, incomplete view of humanity. Look again at my neighbor's logic. I want you to read his second point. Um, he said, I can't pretend my pain isn't real, and others who do so are just playing make-believe. Now, wonderfully, he recognized that there's another approach, the no-suffering approach, and that is impossible. 
It's absolutely impossible. It was first tried around 4th century BC. There was a guy named Siddhartha Gautama, uh, this fellow. He was a prince in an area that's now part of India. Uh, his dad was a king, <clears throat> a warlord we'd probably call him, but a very powerful, wealthy man. And because of a prophecy that doesn't matter for our work today, um, the dad decided that his son was never, ever, ever, he spent a fortune making sure that the man never, ever saw any suffering. You thought overprotective parenting was new, didn't you? Yeah. And, uh, and just like helicopter parenting today, it failed, right? Eventually, his son saw pain and he saw suffering and he even saw death. In response to finally seeing the reality of life, Siddhartha developed a new religion. It was later called Buddhism after one of his exalted titles of being the Buddha. And uh, the bottom line of Buddhism is to reach an enlightenment, a level of enlightenment called nirvana. Anybody know what nirvana means, what it is? Yeah, that's the right answer, nothing. It's nothingness. Very good. I can't believe you all agreed to do that. Um, Nirvana, don't, don't be deceived. It's not, don't believe what the, the advertisements here in the West say. Nirvana is not a dimensional place like heaven. Nirvana is nothingness. And Buddha said that nothingness is the only way to avoid the reach of suffering. You have to actually reach a point where you say there is no suffering, there is no thing. But that train of thought is insufferable in every meaning of the of the term. Look at Isaiah's poetic summary. Uh, read it with me. Isaiah 59, verse 11, all together. We all growl like bears and moan like doves. Here between the Garden of Eden and heaven, every human being suffers and moans. It is inevitable, and anyone who says otherwise is selling something. Just consider Siddhartha. Do you know what's the saddest part of his story? He became just like his dad. He really did. He became exactly like his father, uh, trying to hide all the realistic bad news of life. In fact, he was, he was even worse than his dad because, because the Buddha's nirvana actually demands a detachment from all reality. Jonathan Haidt is an atheist. He's a Jewish atheist. He wrote a best-selling book called The Happiness Hypothesis. Look what he said. He said, when I began writing this book, I thought that Buddha would be right. His diagnosis of the futility of striving felt so right. His promise of tranquility so alluring. But in doing research for the book, I began to think that Buddhism might be an error. Research proves that even people in painful situations tend to live meaningful lives. Instead of limiting suffering, non-attachment seems to deprive us of meaning. Just as plants need sun, water, and good soil to thrive, people need love, work, and a connection to something larger, close quote. Now, I do see problems with that book. I don't recommend it, but hate is spot on here. The no-suffering approach is insufferable. It is literally nonsensical. And like the no-God approach, it reduces humanity to nothing. Now, look again at my friend's thesis. Uh, I want us to read his third point. His third point, he said, an all-powerful, impersonal universe is the best answer. It doesn't have to answer to me because unlike God and people, it doesn't want a relationship with me. He decided a pantheistic force was the best solution. I shared with him that I thought that was flawed because I said, I think you're leaving out a really significant truth. So he looked over his coffee and he said, what's that? What do you think? What am I leaving out? I said, you're leaving out that God suffers. You're leaving out the truth that God suffers. And this is the approach that actually makes the most sense. For example, look up here. Luke chapter 22, 42. Jesus is in the Garden of Gethsemane. And uh, if this ever works. 
And, uh, and he says, Lord, why doesn't my clicker work? And the Lord said, oh, sorry, that's not it. Okay, back away. We were too far. Try it again. You go ahead and take it. Yes. Uh, well done. Father, if you're willing, Jesus said as he's kneeling in the garden, if you're willing, take this cup away from me. Nevertheless, what does he say, everybody? Not my will, but yours be done. Now, when he says cup, he's saying that on purpose because the Old Testament prophets had repeatedly used the image of a wine cup to represent the wrath of God. The wrath of God that had been filled up and had to be drunk. It had to be paid to take care of evil in the world. Jesus is considering his preparation of dying on the cross and he's stating his, his submission to the Father. Jesus is fully God, just as is the Spirit, just as is the Father, but Jesus is also fully human as well. More on that in a moment. As a human, Jesus is in agony. He is literally sweating drops of blood. As God, he is willing to suffer and drink that cup of wrath that must be paid to remove sin and suffering. And that's the answer to human suffering. Not that God's absent or there's no God. Not that, that suffering is an illusion you just need to overcome by detachment from reality. The answer to suffering is that God suffers for humans. He suffers for us. Think about when Jesus got on that cross. There, were, there was a thief on either side of him, right? One of the thieves said this, um, Luke chapter 23, we are punished justly because we're getting back what we deserve for the things we did. But this man, he said, looking at Jesus, has done nothing wrong. And then he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he, Jesus, said to him, truly, I tell you, today you'll be with me in paradise. Now, do you know at the beginning of the proceedings, do you remember what, that, that guy, was he, was he on Jesus' team at the beginning of things? No, he was actually mocking Jesus just like the other thief was. He was picking at Jesus just as clearly. But, but a cross is a painful teacher. And the severity of suffering, as it dawned on this fellow, he began to realize something amazing. Because of what Jesus was doing, all those Old Testament prophecies were coming true. Somebody who trusts Messiah Jesus is granted what God promised Abraham. He's granted grace, a pain-free, perfect eternity. Because Jesus suffered, believers in Christ have an immediate terminus for their own human suffering. People need an answer to suffering, and the answer is that God suffers. All God's people said... Now, let's revisit my neighbor's analysis one last time. There, there is a problem with his reasoning in the very first bullet point. Um, in his first point, he said this. He said, God can't be sovereign because then he would be responsible for human hurt. That would make him bad. Better he not be God than be God and not good. I want to bring out here, he, he's talking about more than just the problem of suffering. He's pointing out that people want an answer to the presence of evil. Now, when he says that, my, my neighbor is following, he, he didn't know this, but he's following the thinking of two really famous thinkers. One is an old German guy, Gottfried Leibniz, and the other is a 20th century American philosopher named J.L. Mackey. And the bottom line of Leibniz and Mackey's reasoning is that you Christians, you people who are believers in Jesus, you promote a hateful God. He is hateful because if there is evil and God doesn't stop it, he must de facto be mean. Now, now that has a number of, of aspects worthy of our examination. First is the standard reasoning. And this is the standard reasoning of the world around you, that God is hateful. It makes mankind the measure of morality. That's a big problem. There's a philosopher named Alan Plantinga 
He showed this definitively. He wrote a book called God, Freedom, and Evil. Now, first thing he did was he summarized Mackey and Leibniz's thesis, and I think he did it very fairly. Here's their basic thesis. Four parts to it. This is why God is, is bad, okay? Why, the, why God must not be good. Number one, God is omniscient. He knows everything, right? Right. Number two, God is omnipotent. He, he has all power. Number three, God is omnibenevolent. He's morally perfect. And number four, there is evil in the world. Because of number four, ergo, God can't be good. That seems logical. Until Dr. Plantinga just asked one simple question. He just asked one question. He said, why? Why does the presence of evil prove God isn't good? And then he went on to show that the only reason we assume the presence of evil means God isn't good is because we have defined good according to what we want. I don't think Plantinga's work is perfect, but he is correct in this. Making mankind the measure of morality is a paltry way to prove that God isn't good. To his credit, did you know this? And it, and it is to his credit, Mackey actually read Plantinga's book and he publicly wrote this response. He said, and I quote, he is correct. Mankind as a measure of morality is implied in my proof and it cannot be used to declare that God isn't good. Close quote. By the way, the psalmist was way ahead of both of them. Um, in fact, Psalm 2 makes a further observation. Psalm 2 shows us that the reason that we human beings want to, want to make ourselves the measure of morality, the reason we want to use us as a moral compass is we desire to worship humanity. Psalm 2. Why do the nations rage? And, and the people's plot in vain. The kings of the earth set themselves. The rulers take counsel together against the Lord and his anointed. That's the Messiah. Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords for us. Why, why do the nations rage against God, declaring that he can't possibly be good? Because we want to be our own gods. The God isn't good approach always ends up, listen, it always ends up worshiping humanity. You look back through all of human history, every time you see a people group beginning to say, well, God can't be good, it always ends up in human worship. Now, no one was quite as bold or bald about this as the 20th century writer Ayn Rand. Um, her fountainhead was a bestseller in the 25th anniversary re-edition of that. She added this in the introduction. She said, man's emotions must be redeemed from the murk of mysticism and redirected to its proper object, man. It's in this sense, with this meaning and, and intention, that I would identify the sense of life dramatized in the fountainhead as man worship, she said. Now, the Bible shows the outcome of this. When you're committed to man worship, this is what happens. Uh, Psalm 106, they served their idols, which became a snare to them. Look, it's a trap. Worshiping humanity, it doesn't matter if you worship humanity in the mirror, that's how most of us worship humankind, or if you worship humanity on a silver screen or as a carved image or as an abstract concept, human worship is a trap from which logic and souls cannot escape. Today, I think man worship is most often, in our particular moment of history, I think man worship is most often expressed in a very popular three-word sentence. Hear this sentence all the time these days. The most popular, maybe three-word sentence of our time is this, you do you, right? You do you. Now, sometimes people say that and they're actually being kind. They're saying you should live out the wonderful person that God has created you to be with your gifts. And, and that's precious, but not most of the time. 
Most of the time, especially in atheism, you do you is about human worship, especially self-idolatry. Here's how I would describe it. You do you is saying this. It's saying, don't you let anyone or anything reason you out of doing whatever you desire. You do what you want because you are the arbiter of what is good. That is hilarious. And the most funny part of it to me, the richest irony, is that it's actually a religion. The, the atheists are who say this, and it's a religion. Ayn Rand even inadvertently admitted this in her book. I doubt she ever realized that she did this. But in her book, The Fountainhead, the hero, <clears throat> the hero's a guy named Howard Roark, okay? He's, he's an architect, he's an atheist, he's the big protagonist of the book. And, and a lady comes up to him at one point in the book, and she says this, you're a profoundly religious man, Mr. Roark, in your own way. I can see that in your buildings. That's true, said Roark. Roark has a religion. It's the religion of Babel. God isn't good enough, so we're going to build our own skyscrapers to reach beyond him. There are other ways that people deal with the problem of evil. I only have time for one more. Here's something that Christians increasingly face. Those of you who know Jesus Christ, you try to share God's love with the world, you run into this one. People will tell you, I don't need that salvation because there is no evil from which I need to be saved. This is one of the most intriguing responses to the, to the presence of evil. People declare there's just no such thing. That's how some people approach it. It's somewhat similar to the Buddhist approach to pain. They say evil's a mirage. It's just a perspective of how you look at it. That's not true for me. It's just true for you. If you'll stop looking at it that way, speaking it, hearing it, you, you, it'll go away. The rock band Rush, about the time I was serving here as a youth pastor, uh, long, long ago, they, they continued in that poem, Neil Peart's poem, Free Will. This was a big hit song at that time. It says this, you can choose a ready guide in some celestial voice. If you choose not to decide, you still have made a choice. You can choose from phantom fears and kindness that can kill. I will choose a path that's clear. I will choose free will. Do you see? Look, your fears, they're phantoms. They're not real. Doesn't that sound nice? There's not really any evil. A lot of Greek philosophers tried to say that. So do some people today. According to this approach, the very clear way for people to proceed is to say there's no right and wrong. There's no such thing as right or wrong. Everybody sets their, this is how you handle the problem of evil. Everybody sets their own definition of right and wrong. They just choose by their own free will. A century ago, Alistair Crowley, the occultist from Britain, uh, he put it this way. Take a look what Crowley said. There is no grace. There is no guilt. This is the law. Do what thou wilt. Yeah, I know. It's horrible. But if he's right, if there's no right or wrong, then, then this is fine, right? I can just take this, right? I, she doesn't need it. Look, she doesn't, she's fine without it. Besides, look at her. She's privileged. She's got a guy that likes her. She's white. Actually, you're kind of tan. But the, the, uh, I'm a Native American kid who's the first member of my family to ever go to college. I need this a whole lot more than... No, I'm kidding. Please, give her a hand. I'm so sorry, right? Now, that's absurd, that's absolutely absurd that I steal somebody's purse. But if you accept that there's no such thing as evil, there's no right or wrong, that's the foolishness that ensues, which is why Proverbs 12:15 tells us this. Proverbs 12:15, a fool's way is right in his own eyes. But whoever listens to counsel is wise. Rebecca McLaughlin gave a chilling summary about the problems with this there's no such thing as evil approach. Look what she said. If there is no moral agency of evil, then no act of moral courage is real either. 
If the ISIS judge who held Nadia Murad as a sex slave, raping and abusing her night after night, cannot be judged for his actions, neither can Harriet Tubman be committed for her courage as she risked her life night after night to help black slaves go free. If Larry Nasser, the USA National Gymnastics team doctor who is serving multiple life sentences for sexually abusing more than 250 young girls, cannot be held accountable for his callous crimes, then neither does Rachel Den Hollander, the first woman to accuse him, truly love her children. Close quote. In summary, folks, both of them, there is no evil and humans define morality. Both approaches are indescribably absurd. So let's consider the scriptural answer. Here's the biblical solution. God is. Turn your Bible to Isaiah 45. It's uh, four books. You're in Psalms. Go four books to the east. Uh, five is right out. Go four to the east. Isaiah 45. I'm bothered that some of you got that. Isaiah 45. Go to verse 20. Verse 20. God says through Isaiah, Come, gather together, and approach, you fugitives of the nations. Those who carry their wooden idols and pray to a God who cannot save have no knowledge. Speak up and present your case. Yes, let them consult each other. Who predicted this long ago? Who announced it from ancient times? Was it not I, the Lord? There is no other God but me, a righteous God and Savior. There is no one except me. Turn to me and be saved all the ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no other. By myself I have sworn. Truth has gone from my mouth, a word that will not be revoked. Every knee will bow to me. Every tongue will swear allegiance. It will be said about me, righteousness and strength are found only in the Lord. All who are enraged against him will come to him and be put to shame. This passage gives a remarkably comprehensive answer to the problem of evil. It unfolds in stages. The first stage is where God calls out fugitives from reason. God calls people to reason with him. Do you see that? To think. Isn't that amazing? No other deity ever does that. God calls people and says, come, let me give my very open word. I have spoken clearly, and let's have a little chat, right? Now, of course, part of God's communication here is pointedly sarcastic. And he's pointing out the absurdity of idolatry. Idols can't speak, and thus they do very poorly in conversation with Yahweh, the covenant God who speaks. The God of all is begging people to come to his word and reason. You fugitives who have been taught that humans define morality. You displaced persons who have believed there is no such thing as evil or good. Come to the Lord and let's think this through together. At a Veritas forum a couple of years ago, uh, a Harvard professor, Tyler Vanderveel, by the way, just a quick aside, does he not look like a Harvard professor? Who would be named Tyler Vanderveel? Uh, anyway, sorry, great guy. Um, he says, any educated person should, at some point, have critically examined the claims for Christianity and should be able to explain why he or she does or does not believe in them. Uh, close quote. A woman from my church added a great thought, a recent letter she sent me. She said, Wayne, real truths are not often sought after in a world filled with sound bites and fake news, but since we're a church whose mission is to do the Great Commission, May we grow into a church that produces strong reasoners, people who show from Scripture that, and she quotes here Hebrews 11, God is, and he rewards those who seek him through faith in Jesus. All God's people said? Amen. Amen. God is, and he opens his word to fugitives from reason. Secondly, God predicts perfectly. Look at, the, look at the next part of verse 21. Who predicted this long ago? Who announced it from ancient times? Was it not I, the Lord? Scripture's true. 
The predictive prophecies in your Bible are staggering, and they've all come true. I just grabbed, literally off the top of my head, three geographic examples. Okay, here's just three examples. Uh, Simeon and Levi, it was prophesied hundreds of years before they ever went into the promised land that they would not have physical boundaries of their own. Uh, Simeon would be absorbed by Judah, and Levi would be scattered all around. Hundreds of years later, that's exactly what happened. Before there was ever such a thing as the Medes and Persians, God predicted Cyrus the Great by name and said he would be the one to set the Jews free and to let Judah leave from their captivity and go back to their, to their land that was promised to them. And that is exactly what happened. Hundreds of years before Jesus was born, a tiny little village, Bethlehem, house of bread, God said that's where the Messiah is going to be born. And that is exactly what happened. Now, of course, I know, as you're thinking, that brings up a question uh, that you're asking in, in, your, in your Neil Peart uh, imitation, Neil Peart imitation, how do God's perfect predictions help me with the problem of evil? I do a pretty good Neil Peart, thank you. Um, it's a great question, Neil. Okay, here's your question. Your question is, so, okay, so God predicts perfectly. How does that help me with the problem of evil? Let me answer you with a question. If I show you that I can repeatedly hit a tiny bullseye how much confidence do you have that I can hit the larger target? Is your confidence high or low? Very, very high. In fact, you're pretty certain that I can hit it because I hit the bullseye every time. The big target's not a problem. So in the same way, since God predicts such tiny specifics and nails those targets, Cyrus the Great, Bethlehem, it, he can be trusted with a plan for the larger issue of evil. And only God can satisfactorily deal with evil because God alone is Lord. Go on in verse 21. Verse 21 continues and says this, There is no other God but me, a righteous God and what, everybody? Savior. There is no one except me. The argument that human beings should define morality is as horrifying as it is hilarious. How do humans even know what's right? We make terrible gods. The real God is necessary to handle evil because only he can recognize and define and eliminate it. C.S. Lewis dealt with this in his book, The Problem of Pain. Look what he said. My argument, he's thinking about before he was a Christian. My argument against God was the universe seemed so cruel and unjust. But how did I get this idea of just, unjust? A man does not call a, a line crooked unless he first has some idea of straight. What was I comparing the universe to when I called it unjust, close quote? And Lewis goes on to show that like everybody else, he gets his idea straight from God. God alone is righteous. He alone defines right and wrong, straight and crooked, and everybody will deal with him in his glory. Go to verse 23. By myself I have sworn. Truth is gone from my mouth, a word that will not be revoked. Every knee will bow to me. Every tongue will swear allegiance. It will be said about me, righteousness and strength are only found in the Lord. All who are enraged against him will come to him and be put to shame. Again, I think McLaughlin deals with this just brilliantly. Her book, Confronting Christianity, which I highly recommend, Rebecca McLaughlin uh, says this. She writes, in the classic Russian novel, Yevgeny Onegin, Onegin, uh, by Pushkin, Alexander Pushkin's great... How many of you have read Yevgeny Onegin? Um, okay, you have homework this summer. Um, it's poetry, so, you know, get some tea, coffee if you have to, and, uh, but it, it really is worth your while. Anyway, here's, she talks about this. She says, in the classic Russian novel, Yevgeny Onegin, a jaded aristocrat, Onegin, meets an innocent young girl in the countryside. The girl, Tatiana, writes him a letter offering him her love. 
Onegin does not reply. When they meet again, he turns her down. The letter was touching, he tells her, but he would soon grow bored of marriage to her. Years later, Onega enters a St. Petersburg party, and he sees a stunningly beautiful woman. It is Tatiana. But now she's married. Onegin falls in love with her. He tries desperately to win her back, but Tatiana refuses him. Once the door was opened, she offered him her love. Now it is shut. Rebecca goes on. For many of us, it is easy to reject Jesus now. Like Tatiana's letter to Onegin, we find his offer touching, but we believe we'll be happier without such commitment. We worry he'll cramp our style, so we move on with life and leave him in the spiritual countryside. One day, the Bible warns, we will see Jesus in all his glory. Our eyes painfully open to his majesty. We will know in that moment that all our greatest treasures were nothing compared with him. And we will bitterly regret that decision, but it will be no more unfair than Tatiana's rejection of Onegin. If we accept Jesus now, we live with him forever in a fullness of life we cannot imagine. If we reject him, he will one day reject us and we will be eternally devastated. Close quote. Uh, Tchaikovsky <clears throat> made a grand opera from that book from Yevgeny Onegin. And uh, by the way, Tchaikovsky, who was a believer in Christ, was not just dealing with uh, Pushkin's book. He was actually thinking through Isaiah 45, the passage we've been studying. And he created an opera that is so great, you're going to listen to the whole thing right now. Uh, we're going to play the entire, take about an hour and a half, you'll be fine. I'm kidding. Uh, I do want to play you one little piece, okay? This is the piece. Here's the moment. This is the moment in the music, uh, and those of you who are allergic to opera, there's no singing. Okay, you'll be all right. This is the moment when Yevgeny sees Tatiana in all her glory. Okay, you ready? All right, hit it. You see it? That's us with Jesus. Now, the music gets very happy and changes, because you know what's happening right here? In the, in the opera, this is where she comes down and she dances with her husband. You see, that's the joy, that's the happiness. That's gonna be me with Jesus, because I'm part of his bride. I get to dance with him forever if I have trusted him as savior. But that shock at the first, that's what Yevgeny got, because he had rejected her. And so he is naturally rejected. That moment of shock, when Jesus is revealed as Messiah in all his glory, it can lead into a beautiful time of dancing just like, just like the waltz in that music. It doesn't have to be a negative experience. You know why. Because, go back to your text, end of verse 21, God saves everybody who trusts him. Look at, look at the end of 21. There is no other God but me, a righteous God and Savior. There's no one except me. Turn to me and be saved all the ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no other. God saves by becoming human. Remember Jesus, fully God, he also embraced everything it means to be fully human, including suffering. And he did that so he could be our redeemer and our great high priest to help us in time of suffering and dance with us forever. Read with me, book of Hebrews, chapter two. Um, you join me on the underlined text, okay? You join me on the underlined text. It was necessary for him, Jesus, to be made in every respect like us, his brothers and sisters, so that he could be our merciful and faithful high priest before God. Then he could offer a sacrifice that would take away the sins of the people. Do you see that? The answer to suffering is God suffers. The answer to evil is God is. Oh, oh wait, we're not done. Go back. Nice try. Since he himself... Since he himself has gone through suffering and testing, he's able to help us 
when we are being tested. God saves all who trust him, and then he is with them forever. Earlier, we referenced Larry Nasser and Rachel Dinhollander. Um, I want to read to you from the transcript of his trial. This is Rachel's testimony at his trial. Rachel Dinhollander is speaking. She says, you spoke of praying for forgiveness, but Larry, if you have read the Bible you carry, uh, Dr. Nasser was in the courtroom with a Bible. If you've read that Bible you carry, you know forgiveness does not come from doing good things, as if good deeds can erase what you have done. It comes from repentance, which requires facing and acknowledging the truth about what you have done in all of its utter depravity and horror without mitigation, without excuse, without acting as if good deeds can erase what you have seen in this courtroom today. The Bible you carry says it is better for a stone to be thrown around your neck and you be thrown into a lake than for you to make even one child stumble and you have damaged hundreds. The Bible you speak of carries a final judgment where all of God's wrath and eternal terror is poured out on men like you. Should you ever reach the point of truly facing what you have done, it will be crushing. And that, says Rachel, is what makes the gospel of Christ so sweet because it extends grace and mercy where none should be found, and it will be there for you. I pray, she said, that you experience the soul-crushing weight of guilt so you may someday experience true repentance and true forgiveness from God, which you need far more than forgiveness from me, though I extend that to you as well. Close quote. The answer to pain is God suffers for everyone. Even, even wretches like Larry Nasser, even wretches like us. The answer to evil is that God is, and he conquers evil through the gospel of Jesus Christ. He conquers even the evil in my soul if I trust him. The world has it all wrong. You Christians, you don't promote a hateful God. You're holding forth the, the righteous God who loves undeserving people through his own sacrifice. All God's people said, let's pray about that. Pray with me. Father, I pray for myself, I pray for my brothers and sisters that we will recognize in suffering we all groan like bears, that we will turn to you. We recognize that you are the one who suffers for us. That in our, in our horrific pain over the evil within and without us, we will, we will turn to you Because God is, and he is a rewarder of those who seek him. You have answered it all in yourself. And because of that, I pray for anyone, anyone studying with us, wherever they may be, who has never trusted Jesus, that you will do what you do, God. You will draw them to you right now. Jesus is, listen, friend, he's who he claimed to be. He is fully God and fully human. And he came because of the suffering in your life. He came because of the evil in your own soul. And he drank that cup. He willingly died on the Roman cross. And then he conquered death. It's an indisputable fact. He rose from the grave so that if you believe in him, you have everlasting life. You have Tchaikovsky waiting to be played for you. If you've never done so right now, believe on Jesus. Trust him.
as your Savior. Everybody else is still praying, but if you, tr- if you trusted Jesus as Savior this morning, raise your hand. Would you please just look up at me and raise your hand? I want to rejoice with you. Good. Praise God. Father, thank you for these believers in Christ and for the incredible joy we have in knowing that whatever suffering, whatever evil, it is well with our souls. In Jesus' name, amen.